Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 22, air date December 5th, 2013. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Orion Distinguished Lecture. I am Gajalakshmi, and I will be your MC for today. Infosys blends culture and modernity into a harmonious equilibrium. We Infosions are known for relentless pursuit of innovation, expanding industry frontiers, and consistent growth. There has always been introspection and scope for enhanced performance. We shall work smarter and faster than ever before in building tomorrow's enterprise. And in our pursuit of reaching unprecedented heights with thought-provoking leadership, we have the Orion Distinguished Lecture Series. Orion has always been a catalyst in encouraging innovation across Infosys. Orion is a thought leadership forum covering domain, technology, process, behavior, creativity, and innovation operating at Chennai DC with a strong focus on not only shaping or honing the individual's thought leadership skills to serve the customers, but also to enable them to participate, share, and showcase their thought leadership in various industry forums more frequently. As a part of this program, we invite distinguished thought leaders from various industries to address Infoseons. And today, we are happy to have in our midst a very eminent person. Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayadurai, inventor of email, chairman and CEO, Cytosol Incorporation, USA. V.A. Shiva Ayadurai is a scientist, technologist, entrepreneur and educator. In 1978, while a 14-year-old high school student, he invented email, the world's first email system, which was the full-scale emulation of the inter-office paper-based email system, for which he was awarded the first US copyright for email. He's a Fulbright Scholar, a Lemelson MIT Awards finalist, and a recipient of the Westinghouse Science Talent Honors Award and holds four degrees from MIT. Born in Bombay, India, V. A. Shiva moved to America in 1970 at the age of seven. He completed his secondary school education at Livingston High School. He pursued his bachelor's, dual master's, and doctoral degrees at MIT, spanning the fields of electrical engineering, computer science, media arts and sciences, applied mechanics, and systems biology. V.A. Shiva's research on patent recognition and large-scale systems development has resulted in multiple patents, numerous industry awards, new computational platforms such as Cytosol, commercial products such as EcoMail, and publications on topics involving science and industry. 
Medicine has interviewed V.A. Shiva since the age of five when he would observe his grandmother, a farmer and a healer, apply Siddha, one of India's most ancient systems of medicine, to heal and support local villagers near the small village of Mahavur in South India. Those early experiences drove him to pursue modern Western science and technology and Eastern medicine with the aim of becoming a scientist and a healer. Over the last three decades, his formal Western research and study focused on developing new systems for pattern analysis across multiple disciplines. At the same time, he trained in many Eastern practices, including various forms of yoga, meditation, and nutritional and herbal medicines, which he has learned from esteemed sagas and masters through the oral tradition. Today, V.A. Shiva is the founder and director of MIT Integrative Health, a new research initiative at MIT, where he also teaches a pioneering new course called Systems Visualization in the Department of Comparative Media Studies. He has also created Systems Health, a revolutionary educational curriculum developed from his research in traditional medicines and systems biology, which is now being offered to major medical colleges and holistic health care centers. He is also the chairman and CEO of Cytosolvin Corporation and the executive director of the International Center for Integrative Systems located in Cambridge. As an entrepreneur, he has started and successfully grown several startup companies. In 1992, he created a program for the White House to automatically analyze and sort incoming emails from U.S. citizens to President Bill Clinton, which was the foundation for his company EcoMail Inc. EcoMail Inc. achieved a market valuation of nearly $200 million. He has appeared in several prominent publications, including the MI Technology Review, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NBC News, USA Today, as well as other major media platforms. He has also authored books about the Internet and early social media, namely Arts and the Internet, the Internet Publicity Guide, respectively. V.A. Shiva continues his passion for entrepreneurialism as Managing Director of General Interactive, a venture incubator that cultivates, mentors and funds new startups in various areas including rural healthcare, media, biotechnology and information technology among others. He has launched Innovation Corps which fuels innovation among teenagers worldwide. He serves as a consultant to CEOs and executive managers at Fortune 1000 companies as well as government organizations organizations such as the United States Postal Service, Office of the Inspector General. V.A. Shiva is a member of Sigma Z, Eta Kappa Nu, and Tau Bita Pei. He supports the Shanti Foundation, which raises money to provide scholarships for education of orphaned girls. He is also a supporter of various arts and non-profit organizations, including the Guggenheim Museum, Very Special Arts, National Public Radio, and the National Geographic Society. He enjoys yoga, travel, tennis, animals, art, and architecture. We are indeed honored to have you with us, sir. I also take great pleasure in extending a warm welcome to all Infosions gathered here and at all other locations. May I now request Ganapati Subramaniam? Head Corporate Planning Infosys to say a few words.
First of all, a very good afternoon to all of you. It's, uh, it's indeed uh, uh, such a great pleasure for me to be here and to be addressing all of you and uh, welcome to Dr. Shiva Yadurai as well. Management guru Peter Drucker once said that there are only two fundamental purposes of any corporation. Uh, one is marketing and the other is innovation. So innovation uh, is core to the sustainability and longevity of any corporation. As uh, Infusions, we should be proud of the heritage of innovation that we as a company have, uh, starting from the fundamental business idea of global delivery model to some of the things that we see today in the form of business platforms and the other new offerings that we have. And innovation is definitely not new to us. It is not a coincidence that Infosys ranks among the Forbes list of world's most innovative companies. Innovation is core to Infosys. Uh, leadership commitment towards that is manifested by creation of uh, Infosys Labs, uh, uh, the different offerings that we see as product, product platforms and solutions, under various verticals, the Center for Innovation for Tomorrow's Enterprise, and a clear innovation agenda uh, for the entire organization through the client-focused Building Tomorrow's Enterprise themes. One important trigger for innovation is uh, our individual ability to think beyond the context in which we operate from, uh, right? And I'm very happy that Orion, uh, which has been encouraging innovation across Infosys, has uh, invited Dr. Shiva Ayadurai addressing us today on the very same topic, on innovation anytime, anyplace, uh, anybody. Uh, it's indeed a great pleasure again. Over to Dr. Shiva. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here, uh, particularly, uh, you know, I've been speaking over the last uh, month to a lot of students, organizations, uh, colleges, but it's really great to be among Indians who are actually technologists in India and to share what I believe is hopefully a small but perhaps an inspiring message that should help all of you on a very personal note to hopefully look at the opportunities of what it means to innovate and what we can do in India. So that's what I want to share with you. So if I can get across to you over the next, how much time do I have? Do I have about one hour? Okay, and we have half an hour questions, right? So I want to share with you a personal story and the intent of me, my sharing this personal story is hopefully at the end of it we can have an interaction and we can perhaps come to some convergence on some potential truths on innovation. So that's what my purpose is today. So I want to first of all thank you know, uh, Infosys. Uh, Karthik Rangarajan is not here, but he was a former Infosian. Um, but he helped set this up with the other HR people. So I want to thank all of you uh, for supporting this. So let me begin by sharing you know, my personal story growing up in India, uh, the invention of email, which, as you will find out, was done by one of your fellow Indians in 1978 in India. And it was really a system. We'll talk about that. And I'll talk to you about what a system is and the importance of systems thinking, which is becoming extremely important to the world, not only from a technology standpoint, but also for addressing some of the large, complex problems we have. Because if, you, if we think in siloed ways, we're not going to solve some of these interesting problems that the world poses. We have to actually cut across disciplines. And so my life uh, sort of accidentally and luckily you know, forced me into sort of that system thinking. So, you know, I was born in Bombay, which, anyone from Bombay here? No one, wow. <laughs> so I was born in Bombay, perhaps some other people were listening in, but I was born in Bombay, which if you were there, it's a very, very cosmopolitan diversity. Is any, everyone here in the audience from Tamil Nadu? 
Yes? Oh, very few. Okay. So, so I grew up in Bombay, which was obviously a very diverse city of all different colors, you know, uh, uh, you know, colorful, you know, all different mixes of people. But the other aspect of my life was, as, as a previous, as the MC mentioned, I also grew up in a small village in Rajapalayam, being brought up my, by my grandparents. And some of you may have had the experience and still do to go, go back to your village. And those villages are very beautiful, so at least they were. And my experience was I was brought up by a woman who, was, who worked in the fields for 16 hours trying to make ends meet, but she also studied a system. She followed a system called Siddha, which many of us in India, frankly, have forgotten. It's probably the most ancient system of medicine, and it's actually based on system science. But she could look at your face, and she could predict what was going on inside your body, and then she would provide you an array of different types of, personal, different types of medicine. It could be physical herbs, it could be massage, it could be yoga, man mantras. Today, in Western science, we call this personalized medicine. Right? That's where Western science has come. But this was done by a woman who had hardly any education, but she followed a system which, you know, we've frankly forgotten, perhaps we should relook at. So as a 14-year-old kid, I was very moved by this. I mean, as a six-year-old kid, I was moved by this. And I wanted to be like her, right? Because I thought it was pretty amazing someone could do this, and I actually saw people getting healed. So my family, 1970, moved to the United States. And unlike your typical immigrant who comes to America where you're seeking, you know, you know, you don't have a job or anything, my parents actually were doing quite well. My dad was a chemical engineer who was ahead of uh, manufacturing Gopala Singhani in, in, in Bombay. My mom was head of the math department at Don Bosco. And again, both of them had come from essentially relatively humble background. So my parents moved there for two reasons. They were in some ways very courageous, adventurous people. They wanted adventure and they also wanted to find a different type of educational paradigm for their kids. So that's why we came. 1970, some of you may know, just like 2009 was not a good year in the United States, 1970 was a very hard recession. So the job that my dad was offered evaporated. So we moved to one of the poorest cities in the United States called Patterson, New Jersey. And if you Google it, you'll find out it's still one of the poorest cities. And um, within seven years, my parents moved to one of the semi-wealthiest cities, Livingston. But essentially, the school systems in the United States really determine um, you know, their com comparative property taxes. So my parents did that. Now, during that period, I was always encouraged to do, obviously, well in school, uh, but also do well in athletics. So I actually did both. You know, I wasn't a typical nerd who was just doing his mathematics, but I also was ahead of the baseball team, played football. Our, our school went to, you know, the number one in the state champs. So I enjoyed both. But an interesting thing occurred to me, because of my interest in math, by the time I was nine years, I think with 13, I had completed all the math courses that my high school had to offer. In fact, they went up to calculus, and I finished that by ninth grade, so I was quite bored. The only remaining things I had to do was to finish up some humanities uh, programs, uh, which I enjoyed. So, I was, so uh, at that time, now you have to think about it, in 1978, software programming was relatively new, right? It wasn't like you had this many people you could call into a software room. Maybe a very small people, group of people even considered themselves software engineers. Mostly software, you know, there was some stuff being done at NASA, but it wasn't an enterprise. So in 1978, again, when, as I go through my story, you'll see that there was no government that came in to support innovation. It was individuals with some visionary uh, 
ideas and some passion. So one of those visionary individuals was a gentleman by the name of Henry Mullish. He was a professor at New York University. New York University is located in the heart of Manhattan, and they have a very interesting um, uh, institute for Corrant Institute for Mathematical Sciences, which is still held as one of the leading institutes for math. And they had decided to offer the opportunity for 40 young students to come to NYU and to actually study computer programming. In fact, they taught seven programming languages. Today, you use Java. You know, some of you probably writing low-level code in C. But in those days, they did Fortran, COBOL. Anyone know any of these languages? PL1, right? Snowball. These were old languages, symbolic languages. So we were, so 40 students were selected. I was one of them, the only Indian, the only one, the youngest, because it, you were only allowed to have 16 or 17. I got an exception. So I, I was this 14-year-old uh, kid who would take a bus to New Jersey, you know, the main tra train station, take a train. This is around 5 in the morning and end up in New York at around 7. Walk through Greenwich Park, which was a highly interesting uh, park, a lot of crime. People would ask you, do you want to try before you buy? referring to drugs. And that was the environment New York was in in those days. So here was this young Indian kid who walked through, and I uh, went there at 8 a.m., used to leave at 8 p.m., eight weeks. And in this very immersive environment, we learned eight, uh, seven programming languages. Graduated at the top of the class, finished this program, was very bored, and my parents were concerned that I wanted to drop out. So this is where sort of luck had it, so my mom, you know, was the one that sort of opened some of these doors for me. She was a, to all the, I know there's, there's not a lot of women here, but there is a few, which is good. But my mom was, you know, uh, was far advanced for her time at the time. She, in the 1940s, went and got a statistics degree in master, a master's degree in statistics when women weren't supposed to get educated. She went at night and got programming, uh, computer programming knowledge. And so she was a systems analyst at a small, a relatively small three-campus medical school called the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, UMDNJ, in Newark, not New York, N-E-W-A-R-K. I say that because Gopi had reminded me people get confused, but Newark, New Jersey. Now, if you've been to Newark, anyone been to the United States? Anyone been to Newark? You have, right? You have? So Newark is in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, a lot of ghettos, and in that medium is this uh, medical college. It has three campuses, one in Newark, one in Piscataway, and then one in New Brunswick. And so in that campus, my mom introduced me to a gentleman, again, another visionary, you know, uh, another person who thought out of the box, called Les Michelson. If you saw Les, he was a uh, brilliant physicist out of Brookhaven. Uh, the university had given him the opportunity to start a small computer lab. And Les's view was that every piece of software that got created in his lab should be bulletproof, which means rock solid, it should run without any failure. Pretty, pretty high vision, right, back in 1978. And another thing, it should be user-friendly. Okay? So this is a guy thinking in 1978 about those. So he, he's, uh, I think, about 35 at the time. He sees this 14-year-old kid. And the way he treated me, again, another aspect of innovation, there was no sense of I'm here, you're here, right? Unlike, which I'll share with you what I experienced at CSIR, which some of you may have read online, there was no sense of feudalism, right? You work for me and I'm going to tell you what to do. 
there was a sense of, okay, here's a guy, let me give him a challenge, let me push him forward and see what he can do. You see, very different. And that was a grandeur, I believe, of a good mentor like that. They push you beyond yourself. So he said, Shiva, look, in this college campus, we have an inter-office paper-based mail system. Keyword there is system. Now, prior to 1978, there was the exchange of electronic text messages, right? Dating all the way back to the 1800s, you had Morse code where you had two devices that could exchange electronic messages. In 1938, IBM had built a radio type which could exchange electronic text messages. And in the late 60s and 70s, some work at MIT and BBNN had done it across two computers using FTP type protocols, right? And someone uh, updated some program call called send message and use the at symbol. But again, that was the exchange of text messages. That is not a system in terms of what I'm going to discuss that I was challenged to. So Les gave me the opportunity to literally be like, I think, you know, when you write software, you go write your requirement specification, right? And then you write your design and then you go start doing your pseudocode and coding. So I learned all of this at a young age. So he said, look, be like an anthropologist. And he gave me the opportunity. So this 14-year-old kid with his briefcase and his notepad, I went and looked at how the office system ran, which was a system. If you, anyone over the age of 40 here? Anyone? No one over the age of 40. Wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm 49. Okay. So um, anyone over the age of 40 remembers most offices have an inter-office paper mail system. Okay. So in this university, multiple three-campus university, you have uh, about thousand offices. And they're connected, right? Not through SMS, not through Twitter, not through Facebook, not through email, right? They're connected through what's called an inter-office mail system, paper mail system. Just as today we re rely so much on email, in those days the offices relied on this mail system. And if you didn't have this mail system, the various components, you could not operate the office. So let's look at that system. So if you went into a small office, they had a secretary who had a typewriter. On that typewriter, she had paper. And I'm going to describe this, hopefully don't be insulted by the simplicity, because I want to emphasize the components of these systems. We, we take them for granted today. So that system was a typewriter, which had paper. Sometimes she had a thing called carbon paper, which we'd stick between two pieces of paper and would write a carbon copy, CC, right? Sometimes you did a carbon copy and you wouldn't put the person's name. That was called a blind carbon copy. She had folders, literally metal or plastic or wooden folders. One was called an inbox, where literally mail came in. Another folder was called an outbox. Another folder was called drafts. Sometimes behind her she had walls of larger file folders where she would archive things, some with locks, some without locks, security, no security. She had a trash bin. She had sometimes very complicated address books. Remember, this was an institution. Some people were divided into groups, pharmacologists, surgeons, etc. So it was a very complicated filing system to even maintain these address books. There was a mailman who would come in and pick up the mail. Sometimes he did return receipt. Everyone seen return receipt on email where you would get a little check off and then you would know that your mail got delivered and that was a special delivery. You had to pay more for that. There was paper clips, sometimes you attached x-rays. Anyway, I'm giving you these details. And if you go on this site we built after this controversy hit called inventorofemail.com, I listed all my notes which were submitted to the Smithsonian. 
So there were probably about 50 to 100 of these components. But the important point is you needed all of these components to make this system operational. If you didn't have the inbox, that was the end of the system. Got it? You had to have return receipt because some people want a return receipt. You had to have your address book. So we made a list of those requirements and the mission was to convert that to the electronic, emulate that, the electronic emulation of that. Not just the exchange of text messages, but the electronic emulation. We didn't need the internet, by the way, for that. We didn't need the ARPANET. There was no reason for any of that. We had our, local, we had our own protocols. We connected the campuses. We had our wide area network. We created our own database system. And above this, I created the first electronic version of the inner office paper-based mail system. And I called that system E-M-A-I-L, email, a term that had never been used before, a term that today we may think is obvious, but in fact, it was a very weird term. I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I thought I should call it E-MAL. It was a very weird term. And the reason I say the term was weird and, and the reason I came up with it was in the Fortran language at that time, um, the RTE4 operating system only allowed five character program names. You were allowed to have six character variable names. Not like Java today where you can have uppercase, lowercase. Everything had to be in uppercase. In fact, when the controversy hit, some of these guys said, oh, uppercase email is not lowercase email. As Noam Chomsky said, no one in the world has ever called uppercase car different than lowercase car. All right? But anyway, it was called email. And if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first term it was used was 1979. And then the next time it was used was 1982, according to Merriam-Webster. But that's when I got the copyright. So anyway, this 14-year-old killed Bill's this. In fact, I used to run seminars like this and treat it, again, very respectfully, where we would educate people. We had uh, slide overheads. You know, there was a user's manual written, et cetera. 500 people were using it in that university ended up winning one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, which is sort of the innovation award they give to university students. Went to MIT. MIT featured it on the front page. And that was about it. You know, we got the copyright in 1982. Remember, software was so new, the Supreme Court and lawyers didn't even know what software was. I remember coming to MIT in 81 when I started uh, my engineering program. A professor said, well, what are you doing The software? It's not anything real. This is at MIT now. Software was thought about as writing. It was thought about as though it was literature, as though it was text. So um, the 1976 copyright law, in fact, did not even recognize software. It was only until 1980 could you copyright software. That was a way to protect software. Only in the mid-1990s did software patents come about. So it was only 1981. I used to be the president of the MIT freshman student body. I was having dinner with the MIT president, Paul Gray. And he said, Shiva, it's unfortunate the Supreme Court doesn't allow us to protect software algorithms through patent, but you should copyright it. That's why I submitted the copyright. And I got the copyright in 1982, email, computer program for electronic mail system. So that's the history of email. Now, we in India, and we as, I know me growing up as a South Indian, we're not taught to promote, you know? We're taught to do good work and you move forward. So there's no interest in self-promotion. Was I interested? We would have done more things. You know, there were some newspaper clippings. It did appear in the MIT front page, as I mentioned. So that was my first introduction to systems, except my grandmother's introduction, who followed a Siddha system, right? But it was a system. But the important point is a system is not just, in this case, the exchange of text messages. You guys follow what I'm saying? Yes? It's a system of all these parts. And that email came out of the office environment not out of these guys who are trying to do military stuff exchanging text messages. 
So that happens. Come, I come to MIT. And my view, when I came to MIT, I was pretty not burned out, but I've ha I actually didn't even want to go to college, frankly. I was tired. So when I came to MIT, I was interested in other systems. I was interested in political systems. Why were there rich? Why were there poor? Why were there these archaic ways of running the world? So I studied, I want to understand why there was a caste system, right? Very controversial topic today in India. And so I studied with um, Noam Chomsky. Anyone heard of Noam Chomsky? Chomsky's um, one of the, he's like the Einstein of linguistics. He's been a very out, out uh, you know, he's the, one of the five institute professors at MIT. Next to Jesus Christ, he's the most cited living intellectual. So I had the chance to study with Noam and I studied political systems. After that, I, I studied pattern recognition systems, but I was very interested in compl complexity, complex systems. Finished my undergraduate, we started a company in graphic design, which we sold to IBM Lotus. Came back to MIT, was very interested in vis scientific visualization. Ended up studying at the Media Lab, did a degree in applied mechanics. In the middle of that, as was mentioned earlier, um, again, separate from email in 78, this is 93 now, uh, the White House was receiving lots of inbound email. I just happened to not be able to get away from email. And the White House was doing it manually. You know, Clinton uh, would have students, interns, handling his email manually. And then, so they were looking for ways to do this automatically. So I ended up being lucky to get invited to participate in this competition, ended up winning it, and we started this company called EchoMail. Again, it was a very complex system. It was a backroom system for large customer service organizations who would use EchoMail to automatically receive email, process it, do outbound marketing. Very, very, very fun company. We had a lot of uh, time building it, but I jumped out of my PhD program, which upset my parents deeply. And, uh, but I came back in 2003. 2003 was very interesting because, um, remember, I'd always had this interest in medicine, right? But I never liked Western medicine because I felt it was so reductionist and it was based on giving a lot of pharmaceuticals, something in my gut didn't want to do this. So I was walking back to MIT and one of my advisors said, Shiva, you need to come back to MIT. There's a new field evolving called systems biology. Again, systems again. So what is systems biology? And I think for the IT professionals, you may find this a very interesting field. Systems biology is the West's answer to attempt to solve some of the problems in healthcare. And, and the foundational problem is that the healthcare system is really not a system. It really views the human body as individual components, right? So if you go to a doctor today and, and they get your symptoms, then based on their symptoms, they say, well, you should go see this specialist for your headache. You should go see this specialist for potentially your neurological disturbance, a psychiatrist. You should go see the endocrinologist, so you end up getting these five different things, 20 different drugs, and you, no one even knows if the drug combinations even work. This is a state of the art in Western medicine today. So systems biology recognized that, that was there a way to organize this and could we get a holistic understanding of the body? And the reason systems biology came was if you look back at the history of biology, in 2002, the uh, Human Genome Project ended, right? Roughly 2002, 2004. And the initial goal of the Human Genome Project was the, was the thought that what made um, me different than a worm, a small worm, was the number of genes, okay? Was the number of genes. The complexity was related to the quantity of genes. So if you looked at the Genome Project in 1999, 
they, they, uh, the estimate was we had about 100,000 genes and a worm had 20,000 genes. As the project went on, it turned out by 2002, 2004, we have about 20,000 genes. We have the same number of genes as a worm does. So it's very fascinating. So what this made people realize, the irony was, the nucleus is not where the focus should be. And in fact, genes are not what make us. It turned out you could have people with the same genetics, but the epigenetics could change us, that we actually interact with the environment, that some of Darwin's assumptions were actually wrong, right? Which means the environment actually can turn on, turn off genes. So that led into a field called systems biology, which said, hey, we need to not just see the genomics, we need to see the cytoplasm, we need to see the environment, we need to see the interconnection across all these systems. So for me, it was a very interesting problem. Here in 1978, I'd taken the electronic version of the office mail system, and here was the opportunity to create the electronic version of the human body in some sense. And in 2003, the National Science Foundation put out a, a goal, which was could you create a computational model of the cell, okay? Some people called it in silico modeling. Today in medicine, you do in vitro testing in test tubes, then you do in vivo in animals. So in silico is this term we refer to, can you model things computationally? So during 2003 and uh, seven, so at the age of 40, I head back to MIT, because I love medicine, and I see this huge opportunity to say, can I take all of my enterprise class IT experience and bring that to medicine, to biology? Because fundamentally, biology was a distributed system. Biologists were creating individual pieces of knowledge about different aspects of the cell, and they were computationally creating different computational models. So we ended up creating a product called Cytosol, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-E-E. And to me, that was interesting because it was an IT infrastructure to integrate biological pathways and from that model the cell. So that's what we ended up doing. And uh, finished that in 2007. I took some time off to come back to India to study the system of Siddha because now I had learned a lot about systems biology and I wanted to take that knowledge to see if I could understand Siddha from a systems perspective. I came back and I found some very interesting correlations which I can share during the question and answer session. And I found out our ancient Siddhas were fundamentally system scientists. When they looked at your body, they had a whole uh, way of understanding your body and characterizing it. They didn't have genomics, but they had a different method. The words were different, but when you come to understand their lingua franca, you find out they were actually system scientists. And they were actually thinking in a very meta-level way. We talk about ontologies, right? Meta-level thinking, that's what these guys were doing. I came back to, uh, and in the midst of that, I was recruited by the Indian government um, uh, under the PMO office to be the first outstanding scientist technologist of Indian origin before I was leaving. And I was asked, Shiva, why are you leaving? Would you like, here you've done many companies, you have all these degrees. Why are you going back to the United States? Would you like to start, be the head of the innovation center of CSIR in India? I took on that role with an amazing sense of passion because I thought, wow, this is great. I could come back and do some small service to my motherland. And within three months, I put together a document which, which essentially laid out a platform. Um, within four months, I probably visited a number of the labs and met over 1,500 scientists. And what was phenomenal was I found all these people who were absolutely brilliant in India, absolutely brilliant. People had amazing innovations in these labs. And, but what was sad was they had the consistent 
remarked that their own superiors were afraid of them, jealous of them, that they would not even let their innovations come out because they thought they would get promotions and they wouldn't. All right? Which was very different for me because I had Les Michelson, who was 35 years old, who had helped a 14-year-old kid innovate email and encourage that. So anyway, some of you may know I wrote a report uh, which got me in a lot of trouble, but I told the truth. I was uh, given death threats and I had to leave India. But I did speak out because I thought it was the right thing to do. Not for me, but for those people who didn't have a voice. So I came back, and when I got back to the United States, I decided, that's when I decided, you know what? It'd be interesting to share the story of that 14-year-old kid. Not for me, but because I felt it was important for others that what were those conditions that allowed me to innovate, and it wasn't money, I didn't have billions of dollars like CSIR did. I had a good mother who encouraged me, a family. I had a good mentor and some infrastructure. And in that, and I was placed in an environment there was a real problem. And in that environment, I was able to innovate. So I shared that story, and my mother had just passed away, and the trunk load of materials, which I thought I, I didn't have, my mom had saved, all the 50,000 lines of computer code, the programming tapes, everything. And uh, Doug Ameth, at, at, at Time, wrote an article. He, he was, by the way, he was the only journalist who looked at the materials. He, Doug looked at the materials and he wrote an article called The Man Who Invented Email. And then the MIT Museum, I asked them if they wanted the materials. I didn't want to keep them in my house. And they looked at it and they said, Shiva, this doesn't really belong here. This belongs in the Smithsonian. It's a national treasure. So the Smithsonian contacted me, and then they held a donation ceremony. It was after that ceremony is when the proverbial controversy hits, which some of you may have seen on the internet. And the interesting thing is there is actually no controversy. The facts, in fact, are black and white. But what happens is when it went into the Smithsonian, you know, from an innovation perspective, there are certain narratives written on innovation. And the prevailing narrative that only MIT only IITs, only Harvard, only certain people can innovate. You follow what I'm saying? There's this narrative. And that narrative uh, was busted up when the documents went into the Smithsonian. Because when I was at MIT and I said I invented Echomel or Cytosol, it was great news. But unfortunately, when I said that email was not invented at MIT, it was invented in a poor city by a 14-year-old kid growing, working there, no matter how hard it is to believe, those are the facts. So when those facts came out, you can see the reaction. And the reaction is an unfortunate reaction because it's actually an inspiring story, but from that reaction, we can all learn a lot. So it's not, all, it's not about me. It's more about the reaction and what the narratives are that we need to fight against if we're going to do innovation. So, those, so if you look at the United States, you know, in India we say we have corruption, but at least we, we recognize it, you know? It's there. In the United States there's corruption, but it's very sophisticated, okay? Very sophisticated. And that corruption is between large companies who fund large academic research to write narratives. And you can see this in many fields. So in this case, a $32 billion company called Raytheon, a military contractor, buys, you know, by the way, missile sales are going down, so they decide to get into the cyber warfare, cyber security industry. So they buy a company called BBNN. BBNN in 2000 started repositioning itself as innovators. In fact, you can go to their website. And they had said their guy invented email. Okay, when he did some good work, 
used the at symbol, which they promoted heavily, wrote about 15, 20 lines of code. Good job, but it was the exchange of text messages. It was in the system. He didn't call it email. In fact, in December of 1977, an article was written by David Crocker, who had attacked me, where he clearly, and we found this article, and David didn't know what to do about it after he found it. I forgot he'd written it. In December of 1977, he said, we, he as being a messaging pioneer in December 1977, said we have no intention to build the interorganizational mail system. It is too complicated, it is impossible. And the re reason was they weren't in the office environment. They were in this very sort of techie protocol environment. But the point is, when this innovation came out, when you have large companies who have vested interests and they position themselves as innovators around the brand of email, that story really shook up the world. And you can see how computer historians, so-called computer historians, who were essentially paid off indirectly, conference monies, these kind of things, they started attacking me. Finally, unfortunately, by the way, MIT's president is the one who started BBNN and Raytheon, okay? In fact, Boston gets funded by Raytheon, so I'm in an interesting situation, right? Phone calls are coming in saying you should fire this guy. It's a very tough situation to be in. And you can see how vested interests work. Fortunately, Noam Chomsky, Noam came out, he looked at the materials and he said this is unfortunate. And they even argued that uppercase email was not lowercase email. By the way, Wikipedia is wrong. If you read Wikipedia, email is the exchange of text messages. You guys should fix that. That's not what email is, because that would make Twitter email. All right? So Noam came out, Wired Magazine came out, and people became quiet. But the bigger lesson is this. Why was there such reaction? In fact, people, some blogs came out saying this curry-stained Indian with his fingernail should be beaten. I'm being serious. Racist, racist stuff. Now remember, you've got to remember my history. When I came to MIT, I was a social activist. Also, I burned the South African flag on the steps of MIT. I led the biggest protests in Boston when a friend of mine who was Tamilian was jailed by the Sri Lankan government when the Prime Minister came. I held up the biggest poster U.S. out of Iraq. So I've been an activist. I've always stood up for others. So here, people were attacking me and no one stood up for me except Chomsky. But it taught me a big lesson about courage because I knew what that 14-year-old kid did, guys. See what I'm saying? The facts are black and white. If I'm Tim Berners-Lee and I write some code, I get knighted, right? But the point is there's narratives that are built that India, you know, Indians don't innovate, right? Only certain people do. Only America can have Henry Ford's, perhaps. Only America can have Thomas Alva Edison's. But we don't have our own stories. You follow what I'm saying? It is narratives which shape all of us, stories. And so what's really important is that we defend truth where it is. So the invention of email is really not my story anymore. It's your story. And you have to look at the facts. In fact, A&I News came yesterday to interview me. They, the guy interviewed me, and then they put Shiva claims, because he said some guy in the head office in Delhi wanted to change it. See what I'm saying? This kind of stuff is going on in the world today, and it's against anti-innovation. And it comes down to this. Today in the world, we need to, bottom line, create 1.8 billion jobs. Jim Clifton, the head of Gallup, just came out with a book called The Jobs War. We need to create 1.8 billion jobs. Infosys does a great work in creating jobs, right? But we need to create 1.8 billion jobs. That's 180 million jobs a year within the next 10 years. And the prediction is if we don't do that, 
we're going to have a lot of more Arab revolutions. Arab revolution was not about religion, it's about jobs. Now how are we going to create those jobs? Are we going to create them through a model where a few Raytheons and a few MITs are the only ones who own innovation? Which means VCs go to a few innovation centers, fund a few guys who happen to pass through the IIT or MIT exams, and they get the right to, you know, a hundred companies get innovated and you get one Google or Facebook. That's not going to work anymore. It will not work anymore. Those models will not work. The model that will work is recognizing that there are many other people in small cities, small centers all over the world who can innovate. And there are a lot of freaking smart people in this world. And they all need to be given simple opportunities and the right environment. Mentorship, good families, and some infrastructure. Government and money is frankly secondary. And that's what the story that I experience is all about. It's a small story, but it's an important one. And it's something I think it's about time we all embraced and appreciated and defended because it's not about defending email per se. It's more about defending each of our rights to innovate. That's what it's all about. You know, Philo Farnsworth, I don't know if you know this, was a 13-year-old farm boy invented TV. Do you guys know that? He was in a small Utah village he used to see the way the sun hit the rays of the wheat fields and it created a raster symbol. He invented it, he copyrighted it. Stanford and RCA tried to bury him for 20 years. It was only five years ago that finally the US government accepted him. He became an alcoholic, died, and his wife had saved all his memoirs. The reason I tell you this is that there are many stories like this. Every day in Indian villages, people are innovating to survive. Innovation is in our DNA. It's not something that's only the purview of a few people. It's not the purview or the ownership of a few people. So I want to challenge all of you. You know, you're very smart people. You have phenomenal infrastructure here. But it's the narratives that shape who we are. Do you know what I'm saying? It's the stories that we're told and the stories we need to rewrite appropriately for our children that's going to change this world. And the story is there's a lot of smart people who deserve a chance and in that environment, we're going to have innovation flower everywhere. And that's what I really wanted to share with you today. And I hope that all of you recognize that within each one of us is a spark of something that's far greater than we ever know. And the purpose of life is to, is to enable that spark to come out. That is life. And that's what innovation is. It's the ultimate expression of creativity. And every one of us deserves that. And that can only occur in an environment of freedom where all of us have that opportunity. So I want to encourage you all of that to struggle for that and get that and deserve that. That's what we all need. Thank you. Do you want to take some questions? Question answer? Don't be shy. I'm sure you're, you're not a CRR uh, product or uh, achievement or whatever you have told, being an Indian. I am more proud uh, to say that I am also from Rajapaniam. I see. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. I, I want to know more uh, about your spiritual side which helps in, in innovation and in, in, in leading the life. 
you, you uh, in, the, in the introduction you mentioned about your spiritual side. I am sure it will help in, in our day-to-day -day life and in innovation as well. Sure. Well, you're asking a very deeply personal question, but since I offered to be very personal, I'll share it with you, because I think it's probably the most important aspect of life. So when I came back to India, so, so you know, you want, I can give you a long story, but you know, I grew up in a very interesting family where my great-grandfather was also a farmer, but he would go into these trances, and when he left, he literally called everyone together, went into Padmasana, and he said, I'm leaving, and he left. Okay? Then my grandmother did some very interesting things. He did great sadhana. So I grew up in this environment where I thought this was normal. I thought everyone's family was like this, all right? But I was taught at a very young age on the power of uh, what you call meditation or awareness. See, in Western science, we're taught that there's a difference between the observed and the observer, right? There's a Heisenberg uncertainty principle which shows that there's always an error. But Western science is, works reasonably well. Now, the Eastern Siddhars, we took a different approach. You know, we became witnesses to that entire process. That's what meditation lets you do to build a different aspect of understanding. So I learned at a very young age to meditate, but also, more importantly, uh, to visualize. You know, there's many techniques. You see the ancient system of Siddha, there's seven chakras, and each one of those, if you want to think about it as a software architecture, you think about it as a seven-tiered architecture, okay? <laughs> And each architecture is running on different, you know, um, not OSs, but different types of programming languages, okay? And each of those architectures, you can, you have to supply different types of uh, methodologies to access and use. Got it? So our ancient systems have said that they did that. But ultimately, what happened is if you look at yoga, it's a very interesting system. There's a lot of people who do yoga, which are, re some people who do yoga, or there's a set of people who do yoga, who are really not very nice people, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, right? They do yoga, but they're really mean to everyone else. But anyway, the point is that the, the ancient systems, if you actually study them, they didn't ever say to just do one form of yoga, just to do asanas, right? Or just to focus on the third eye. Ultimately, if you look at most forms of yoga that come up until the Sankaracharya movement, ultimately they say among those seven chakra, the most important one was the heart chakra, right? bhakti and devotion and serving others. So that's something I believe in. And so I was trained in many of these techniques, but ultimately, the ultimate yoga, I mean, you can go meditate, great thing, very healthy. You know, I encourage everyone to do it. But the ultimate thing is, what do we do for our fellow people? That's the ultimate yoga. It's the ultimate spirituality. So I am a deep believer that each one of us is connected to everyone else in energetic ways that we don't even know. In fact, science is now proving we have things called empathetic neurons, that if I see a spider climb on you, you ever feel it on yourself? Yes? You know what I'm saying? So we have these empathy. Human beings are actually designed to be actually highly empathetic human beings. We're not designed to actually be competitive. So there's a lot of failures in Western models which are being provoked now by our Eastern systems, which Western science is also showing. So I think my spiritual side of me, which uh, shows me that our Eastern systems actually support this nature of collaboration and the fact that we're here actually to give and support our fellow human beings. That is the ultimate purpose of life, and I think that's the ultimate way we liberate ourselves. Hi, Rishwa. I'm Siddharth. Uh, we've already hidden about how government agencies have been snooping to our emails 
We have the prison system in US, India, similar system has been created. Uh, it's called the Central Monitoring System. So uh, my question is, while you were, uh, you were preparing the, you were designing the system of the email, did you ever factor in uh, this this uh, thing that someday something like this would ever happen? Did you ever imagine this? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, in the medical environment, when we created it, the, the, interesting enough, the doctors were very much against email. They didn't want email to occur. One of the reasons was they were afraid of their patient records. You know what I'm saying? There's a whole thing around patient records. So that was one issue that we dealt with. But I think the more interesting thing that you bring up is also a social issue and a political issue. The fact is that there are these technologies. In fact, the US has a technology called Carnivore, right, which can go through email and all sorts of things. And you had Snowden recently come out and expose this. What's unfortunate is that how many governments denied him and how very few people actually stood up for the guy. You know, what he did, I think it'll go down in history, he was a patriot, not only for America, but for all people. He actually stood up for all of us to expose this. I mean, he, he whistleblowed and he put his job on the line, but he, and now it's saying he's put, putting his whole, uh, you know, his, 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 his himself on the line. But I think when you look at the technologies we as technologists create and we do, we also have to recognize we also have some level of social responsibility for these things. Right? So we're not, you know, there's a great book, I forget the title of it, written by C.P. Snow, who was a scientist who, like Norbert Wiener, I believe he, didn't, he refused to work on the, uh, the Manhattan Project in the United States. But he said that, it, that one of the goals of intellectuals and engineers is to also look at their social role, right? So we have a responsibility, clearly, when we hear that ultimately our freedom is being owned by a few set of people. First of all, I, I didn't give the US government the right to go through my emails. I don't know if any of you guys did to the Indian government. Did anyone? So we haven't given these people these rights, right? So I think we live in a very, very interesting age where we live in these two extremes. We live on the verge of extreme fascism, right? Where governments can completely own us, 50, 500 people around the world. And we also have this opportunity that more people are being educated, more people have access to actually speak our voice. You're seeing that in other countries and I think we need to see the same thing in India. I think 50% of India is now below the age of 25. 70% uh, is below the age of 40, and this group of people, you know, in the last 20 days I've been here, I've absolutely been so moved by all of you. You guys are absolutely bright. No one can bullshit you, okay? That's what I see. I see no one can pull the wool over your eyes, and, I, and I'm very moved by this because uh, it's going to be hard for future political leaders to convince you of something that's not true. So I think there's a huge opportunity, particularly for you guys with money, some disposable income, to think, right, to actually support a new movement in this country which demands absolute freedom. That is going to be absolutely uncompromising on some of these issues like this and raises your voice boldly. And you as IT professionals can actually absolutely be influential, you know, in doing this. So I think you're bringing up some very important issues. I've thought about them. And I think we need a movement of engineers to really look at these issues and be very responsible about it. Thanks for your question. Thank you, this is Vishnu. Hi, Vishnu. I'm inspired by your speech, in particular, the whole story. 
I have, I'm just curious about your research on Siddha because it's especially about India's rural health sector. India has more than 6 lakh villages. So what is in your store? Well, what is what? What is in your store? What is in your research? Okay, so let me tell you what I discovered, okay? I'll, I'll keep it brief. Do, are we okay on time? Okay. So how many people know what Siddha is or Ayurveda? Anyone? Wow, it's amazing. You guys not looked at this. Anyway, so in the Siddha system, right, I'm going to consolidate. There's a whole language that they have, but fundamentally, um, a tip, most of the diagnosis in Siddha, they, they take you as a body and they characterize you as Vatha, Pitta, or Kapha. Everyone heard of this? Vatha, Pitta, or Kapha, right? And based on that characterization, then they say these foods are good for you, these are bad for you, etc. Right? Now the problem is if you go ask a Siddha scientist what is Vata Pitta Kapha, they can't explain it to you. So the Western people say, oh, these guys are just doing some witchcraft, some magic, we're not going to buy it, right? That's what happened. So I spent the last 30 years of my life trying to figure out what is Vata Pitta and Kapha. So let me ask, and I'll tell you what that answer is. I'm going to tell you a 13 week course in two minutes. <laughs> but this is what it is. Because you guys are all engineers, everyone's an engineer here, right? In every system in the universe, there are three components that we learn in systems theory, if you study systems theory. Those three components, one of the components is called transport or I.O., input-output, motion, right? Input-output, the movement, that's a meta-level concept, transport, right? So in your computer, you have the keyboard and the display, input-output, phenomenon, transport. The other concept all systems have is called conversion. Right? Everything has conversion. Your CPU, right, takes information in, it does some conversion, and you get conversion. Your digestive system converts. Your diesel generator that you have, which unfortunately needs to run sometimes, takes fuel and you convert, it does transduction. The eyeball converts, there's a process of conversion. The third process every system has is called storage, okay, or structure, like the structural elements of this building here. Store us, right? Right? Or the storage element of a battery stores energy. You see, there's always three aspects of all systems. Well, guess what Vata, Pitta, and Kapha actually are? Vata, Pitta, and Kapha are actually transport, conversion, and storage. Very simple. These ancient Siddhars were system scientists. When they looked at you, they were characterizing your system type or your natural system state. So they're characterizing your body. And, but they were doing it as a system. So that's why they characterized an herb. If they saw caffeine or coffee, they would say it's high vata, right? High transport. Because what happens when you drink coffee? It causes more motion. So I can, this is a summary of it. So I put this together when I got back into a 13-part lecture series. I essentially found this bridge that I could explain to the Western world what Eastern meant, coming at it using engineering systems theory. So I put this together into a course series called Systems Health. I ran it at MIT, and uh, we had 100 to 200 students showing up every night, Thursday night. We did it as a lecture series, MDs, PhDs, and it became very successful. We organized that into an into a, uh, online curriculum called Systems Health, which you can actually access, and we've given it now to medical schools. So the idea is now the Western world can appreciate Siddha from a perspective of engineering systems here, because it just makes it absolutely clear. So that's one of the things I've done. In addition to that, we've taken this, this concepts and actually put it into understanding the, the herbs and testing it with cytosol so we could actually 
create new drugs and new nutraceuticals at a much lower cost using the SIDDA approaches. Does that answer your question? Okay. Do you want to take questions from elsewhere? Any other location? Uh, do you have questions? Hello, this is from Chennai Shows. Yes. Can everybody hear us? Yeah, we can hear you. Uh, Dr. Shivam, my name is Manoj. Hi, Manoj. Uh, I have small, uh, I said, I have small question like, uh, I can see that you are more interested towards the system biology. And uh, we being software engineers, what, or, or how do you think, what kind of role we can play in uh, implementing our knowledge into systems biology and what things we should know in terms of system biology to implement the already knowledge we have, that we have to bring up something new or what kind of role do you think we can play as software engineers into systems biology? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, the opportunities in systems biology for software engineers are absolutely infinite. Let me tell you why. What's going on right now, so what's happened is, first of all, let's look at what is biology, right? Biology, unlike physics or engineering, uh, is an experimental science. In engineering and physics, you have first principles, F equals MA, E equals MC squared, using, by the way, the, the Latin term for this is called ab initio, first principles. So in other fields, you use first principles. You can draw, you can use F equals MA, and you can pretty much figure out how to build a bridge, right? or how to design a rocket, but you, you don't know how to, there are no fundamental laws for designing the human being as of yet. So what happens is biology is fundamentally an experimental science. Every second, new papers are being published by biologists, right? And biology from a software, if you want to look at it as a software model, it's highly multi-tiered, okay? People work on multiple scales. So there are people who study in small research groups, just one gene, okay, at the genomic level, or one molecule, or the crystal structure of one molecule at another level. Then people study how two molecules interact. That's a different layer. Then other people study how multiple molecules interact. That, that are, that's called molecular pathways. Then other people study particular cells. Then, and then other people study particular tissue structures and organs. You see, it's a multi-tier architecture. At each of those levels, there's different papers being published, different pieces of knowledge. So the ultimate goal of systems biology is could you create the whole human body computationally taking all of that knowledge and everyday new knowledge is being published, right? Imagine we could model computationally the entire human body. I've looked at the human cell. So this is probably one of the most complex multi-tiered architectures, right? Separate from the ecosystem and the cosmos. So what's happening now is petabytes of information are being produced by bioinformatics, petabytes, right? Beyond terabytes every day. And this information is coming from all these three layers. So, for, so if we want to achieve this goal of modeling the whole human body, there's need for bioinformaticians, there's need for new ontologies, there may be even need for a whole new type of operating system to handle this. And there needs to be methodologies for doing distributed computing, because what happens today is biologists are spread out all over the world. Many of them are creating pieces of knowledge that they write and they forget about. The other big opportunity for software engineers, which could be revolutionary, is this. Today, the way science is done, I have a lab, let's say, I get research funding, I do my experiments, I collect data, 
I keep the data to myself, okay? Because I don't want anyone else to publish it. That's the way the model is driven because you want to get tenure, let's say. So that's how these guys work today. And then they keep the data and then they publish it. And there are so many papers in these prestigious journals, no one can replicate the data. All right? No one knows if they're doing the right experiments. In fact, there's people who do prestigious journals. Is the science that they're doing real? You follow what I'm saying? So there's a, there's a desire now to do what people are calling open research. Right? As you produce data, you publish it immediately so everyone has access and everyone can verify your data. These are going to require some really new types of you know, distributed ways of doing software engineering. So all I can tell you, Manoj, that in each of those layers, there's new need for ontologies, there's new needs of meta-languages, there's new needs for storing data, there's new needs for how you in integrate data. So there's huge opportunities um, you know, for... Uh, for, uh, for the reason I'm reaching into my pocket is I want to make a point here that fu fundamentally this, you know, is going to become the doctor of the future. You know, your cell phone. And the back end that we're going to need on this to do that is going to have to be many, many different types of applications talking to each other. So all I can tell you is that those, I, I think most engineers will actually love biology. So if you have a chance to study, take some biology courses, do it. Because you'll find it fascinating. It'll deepen your knowledge. But you'll see you study these biological systems, and they're fascinating. They're actually engineering systems. Hello. Hello, sir. Yes, how are you? Hi, uh, my name is Ajay. Uh, my question was about the uh, role innovation plays uh, uh, in, in maybe shaping a country's economy. So if I compare uh, US today versus India, right? So would you attribute the progress that United States has made purely based on uh, innovation or reducing there are other factors? So, so I think your question is what, what are the conditions that the US has that's different than India? Is that? Yeah. What, okay. Yeah. And, and will, will innovation be the answer to, you know, uh, in India's progress as well? Yeah, it's a good question. So, look, when the, many of these questions need to be always answered in the historical context. All of you guys are software engineers, right? When you have a bug, what do you do? You go to, I think most of you are encouraged in your, probably your tracking systems to go try to find the root cause, right? Yes? I assume that's what your engineers tell your customers want, right? I'm sure many of you have been on these customer calls. We want to know what the root cause is, right? So, if you want to look at this difference in innovation, um, it's you have to look at the root cause. And most of the root cause, I believe, comes down, you know, there was an article I wrote after the CSIR incident called Innovation Demands Freedom. And in that article, the subtitle was Why America Innovates and India May Not. Okay? It wasn't to attack India. It was basically, hopefully, people to start thinking about this. And the article basically went through and said, fundamentally, the Indian institutions, and I, I think Infosys is different from this, I don't, I'm not putting Infosys in any way in this group, but large Indian institutions are fundamentally run in feudal models, feudalism, right? Where you have sort of these lords who think they can dictate. And the article was Innovation Demands Freedom, basically saying that ultimately we need to have a free, transparent, open environment. I'm not saying the United States, by the way, is perfect, but they have about like a two degree difference, okay? They had a good revolution. They kicked out some people, right? Which I think was good, all right? Um, but that freedom, that two degree of freedom, certain level of better jurisprudence, certain level of intellectual property protection in certain areas, creates this environment that even two degree of freedom difference creates this environment 
where people are encouraged to break rules culturally. It's okay to make mistakes, right? And that is a cultural issue. You know, when I think when uh, Lou Gerstner stepped down from IBM, he said that do not underestimate culture, okay? So my view is that there's no simple answer to say, we're gonna just put a ton of money in and we're gonna simply replicate the US models to cause innovation here. I believe India really needs to have a cultural movement here where we need to demand freedom in very fundamental ways, in thinking, in lots of different types of liberal attitudes. You know, there's this whole caste issue. I think we should give, uh, you know, tax credits to people if they do intercaste marriages, you know? We should encourage this. You need to break down these hierarchies, right? Those hierarchies do exist in the United States, but the reason the U.S. has this advantage is relatively some of those hierarchies do not exist. And I know this may be hard to, you know, accept, but th that is a fact. If we can have a cultural movement, and I think now that you have people with some income who can think freely, you guys are really the, the, essentially the front end of that. So all I can tell you is that cultural difference is what may, provides the U.S. You know, this capability, this ability to think and this freedom. And I think people should demand that freedom because I think that freedom is what leads to innovation. You can't just create innovation overnight. That's why I think China will also have problems in doing this. You know, there's some fundamentals there culturally that don't exist. Again, this is my opinion, but it comes from a feeling that culture is very, very important. Shiva, I have a follow-up question. Sure. I, you said, no. I have been a big follower of innovation. I have interacted with Vijay Gwendirat and Kamsa and people like that. And I also listen to you now. And I'm also a follower of uh, the uh, grassroots innovation in India, whether it's in uh, agriculture or uh, medicine or areas. A lot of things happen in India, whether it is within CSI. I had the fortune of uh, working in one of the units, CSI work for some time. A lot of things happen, but where we lack is not just uh, freedom or anything, the finishing touch. Uh, like you have been successful in converting some of your ideas into a business proposition which which been of the company. But in India what happens is uh, those people, apart from angel investors mm -hmm. give money, the finishing touch to make it into a viable product, because the end goal for all of us is also to make some money. Yeah. It doesn't happen. That is where uh, India seems to lack what happens in U.S. or the rest of the world. What do you think is the root cause for this? And yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a good question. So one of this, I actually have a solution for this that I want to prototype, and we're going to launch it actually in India end, end of August. I called it Innovation Corps. Let me tell you what we want to do. Here would be, a, imagine this success. In a year from now, we could take 12 young people, 14 through 17, 18 through 21, not just simply have them do some idea, right? There's a lot of people doing this, but actually have them create a viable business, a business, a running business that's funded and actually has customers in 12 months. So a lot of the pieces that happen when people do innovation, much of the motivation is coming from VCs and business school guys, right? And much of their entrepreneurial motivation is about business plans and projections and funding, et cetera. And I'm a very different, I'm of the opinion that innovation really occurs in the context of customers. That you actually have to have a customer. If you look at most of these innovations, anything I've done, and anything I know any of my entrepreneur friends have done, they don't, many of my entrepreneur friends never have written a business plan. Because most business plans you write are a factor of 10 or 20 off. The numbers that you put in the spreadsheet looks good, but no one knows if it's true, okay? 
But what you do know is if you have a customer. So what we want to do is we want to launch this thing called Innovation Core. We want to identify 12 young people, men and women, and we want to give them full, like, world-class level support. Meaning if they have a good idea, they have to have a customer. We don't care if their product is bad or good. Can they get a customer? If they get a customer, we want to give them legal support. In fact, we're going to have a Harvard lawyer help them. So they get the best legal support in the world. We want to give them accounting support. Then we want to give them a business mentor. And in that environment, let them actually create a business, an actual business that you know, figures out the accounting issues, the legal issues, takes a customer, and actually services them. Even if the customer hates the product, our view is you learn a ton from an angry customer, which I'm sure people learn right, with customers. The more angry customers you get, you actually you know, complain as a gift. So our model is to do that. And if they can handle a customer, let them handle three customers and let them then scale and get it funded. So I think the finishing touches are where is the emphasis? Is the emphasis about just getting an idea, getting it funded, or is it actually work with a customer and, and get a product out where you learn a lot? So that's the experiment I'd like to do. And I think from my own experience, when you have customers, it, it gives that, I think as you say, a finishing touch because it forces the entrepreneur to have to be very honest. Because now you have to learn how to sell the product, how to package it, how to deliver it, and you have to deal with complaints and issues up front. So this is something we're going to launch on August 30th. And we'd like to, next August 30th, I'd like to come back here and have 12 students here, you know, all of who started 12 businesses. All have been funded and they actually have a product or service. So to me, that would be you know, what I call success. Now, are they all going to be successful? That's a different question. But the fact that they've gone through that, the 12 of them, I think they're going to have a rich experience, which is going to make them very successful in anything else they do after that. I don't know if that answers your answers, question. I'm just curious, these 12 uh, like entrepreneurs, mm. areas, is it? Uh... Anything. I don't care. Look, sometimes even doing a simple service you know, takes a lot of effort. People underestimate how much it takes to serve a customer, right? I mean, people think about Indian companies, oh, they're just bringing engineers here. And I mean, the amount of effort it takes to get a customer, build them properly, service them, make sure they're happy, do follow-up calls, surveys. I mean, there's a lot of work you have to do on the front end and then get customer references so then they give you better reference. These are all the other things that are never put into this equation. I think if you may be listening, referring to these finishing touches, they're equally important as a product. Another question on your current uh, area of interest or passion. You also spoke about it, the uh, three Nadis, the Bittam, Vadam, yeah. and uh, the combination of these, the right combination, which is the Mula Nadi, which is the <coughs> fundamental of Siddha. Yeah. And basically, I also go to a Siddha doctor and uh, based on uh, the pulse, which is the Nadi, uh, you can find out whether uh, your Pittam is bad or your Vadam is bad based on that. But, uh, do you think, uh, and the medicines are a solution to most of these problems, is in herbs or the native, uh, basically available uh, bio-regeneratable resources. Why can't we make it popular around the world? Why is it not uh, growing in interest? Yeah, so it's, that's a great question. So, look, um, how are we doing on time? I can. Okay, so it's a very good question. I think just to repeat the question of people, the issue is we have these systems in India which have existed for thousands of years. We know they work, right? But why aren't they more popular? Well, there's two reasons for this, right? One is 
if you get back to the earlier reason I talked about, there's these systems of power, right? So for example, when Siddha and Ayurvedic formulations came out and they were starting to get popular, you suddenly started seeing sudden warnings in the United States. Siddha and Ayurveda carry heavy metals. Okay? Beware. So you, you have, look, you have a trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry, trillion dollars, which has built this entire system on this open systems model. They find a synthetic drug, they take it through this process 13 years, $5 billion to produce one synthetic drug. They put tremendous amounts of marketing behind it. If anyone has anyone who's a medical school, my, my sister is an MD. She went to Harvard Medical School. She said at her graduation, the graduation dinner is sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. Okay? The trips to the Bahamas are sponsored by the pharmaceutical company. Okay? She said, by the time you're a doctor, you don't even know what drug you're giving because a sales guy knows more biochemistry than the purchasing agent at the hospital. Okay? But this is a reality. I'm telling you, this is, this is reality, right? So, when this is a you know, trillion dollar industry, so if you're saying, oh, you know what, I have a solution for dengue fever, which, by the way, there is, which costs nothing. Now, this, this hurts a lot of people's wallets. Not a lot of people, it's a finite set of people's wallets. So, these large multi-billion dollar companies actively fund research to attack these systems of medicine. So that's one part that's going on. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just what they do in the norm. This is what I call sophisticated corruption. The other aspect of this is this, that we in India, right, uh, and also from a technology standpoint, have not been able to prove this through evidence-based knowledge because the history of most of our Siddha stuff is, you know, father passed it to son, kept very secret, right? It was not producible. These are, the, these are our own faults. When we did Cytosolve, my subversive reason to do Cytosolve, yes, we're creating this drug. We did, the only reason we're doing this is just to show the pharmaceutical guys that we can hit, match them one-on-one, -on -one, that we can get a drug out to market faster than they can. But the reason for the Cytosolve infrastructure is we can literally model now, mechanistically, diabetes, cancer, with molecular pathways. With that infrastructure, we're now able to take different nutraceuticals, different herbs, and we're actually able to show their combination, their effects, scientifically. So what we want to do is we want to use this infrastructure to look at our ancient Siddha Vaidhyams, and we want to, we're actually going to be, we have the, uh, the for-profit version of our business, but we're actually going to create a version, a consumer version, where we're going to offer it online so you can actually come and test these combinations and prove whether they work or not, almost like an independent consumer reports version. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing is we're about to release a product called Your Body, Your System, which presents Siddha, but from the Western lingua franca. So people can use it on their iPhone so they can ask a certain set of questions. It can figure out their Prakriti, and it can actually propose them different types of supplements, things that are appropriate for them. So those are the ways that we're doing it. Again, you asked, I think Manoj asked about using IT technology. There's amazing ways if we use our own rich body of knowledge that we have here, we can convert them to applications and products. And I think this is what I mean. This is the kind of innovation that we already have that the West doesn't have that we can bring to market. The other piece that I want to let you know on this Nadi, everyone know what the Nadi is? Right? It's the pulse, right? There's a very interesting paper that just came out that was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about four years ago. The prevailing theory, we have nerves in our body, right? The Hodgkin-Huxley model said that how nerves communicate is through what? 
Anyone else? Electrical impulses, right? Yes? Everyone study that, yes? Electrochemical. What's that? Electrochemical. Yeah, electrochemical. That the impulses are electrochemical. These two guys at, uh, at uh, Max Planck have actually promoted a very radical theory, and they have data to show this, that the signaling in nerves is not, is not an electrical signal. It's actually a sound, that it's a soliton. There's a very interesting phenomenon in physics. You can generate a wave that's called a standing wave that can maintain its shape for long periods of time. It's called a soliton, S-O-L-I-T-O-N. And the prediction is that actually what's traveling down a nerve signal is actually a sound. And that sound has a piezoelectric effect and it generates an electrical wave. Now what's fascinating about this, if you read all the ancient Siddha texts, the idea is these nadis that we have, that just like the Bible says in the beginning there was the word which was the sound of God, that most of the theories that first there was sound and then came light, that the beginning was sound. So it's a fascinating set of results that are coming out because when I asked some Western trained doctors, they said, oh, this Nadi stuff doesn't make any sense. How can you have sound changes in a small piece of, you know, two centimeter difference? Well, the fact is that it may be a soliton wave that's changing. But anyway, the point I'm making is that we need to relook at our own science. And the unfortunate thing, it's in these different words. So part of it is, to answer your question, there's always these language issues. And if we can decipher it, we can build applications, we can build tools. I think we get our science out to more people in very sophisticated ways. They don't have to seem hocus pocus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. Thank you. PhDs India produces every year? India produces very few PhDs, right? We don't encourage people to do, you know, sort of scientific research per se. The idea is you, because the market forces are really here to serve outside interests, we produce engineers, right? The economic forces really produce engineers to service outside companies, right? That's how you get placements in colleges. It is, someone has to do a significant, really be dedicated to want to go do PhD level research. So at the foundational level, there's very few PhDs we actually produce in India. So that's one of the main reasons. Uh, now, if you look at the number of, now what would be an interesting statistic is to look at those 30% of papers that are published in the United States, how many of them are done by Indians? Okay. <laughs> And I would venture to say that you would probably see a very different number. Okay, because when you go outside, there are other forces. The United States recognizes that if you do basic research, you actually get a competitive advantage, right? So we haven't recognized that in India yet. So our people leave and they go to the US and they do fundamental research. Out of that fundamental research comes new technologies. Out of that technologies, you get intellectual property. Out of that intellectual property, you get people venturing and doing businesses. But that's really the pipeline. We haven't created that pipeline here because, again, going back to the foundation of doing academic research and supporting it, you have all these very weird types of stuff that take place when you're trying to do PhD level research. You have your own boss trying to steal your stuff, okay? And I'm not saying this doesn't occur in the United States. Again, a couple of degree difference. But there's not that much, relatively less encouragement 
to do that level of research here. So, but again, it's not an issue of capability. Clearly many of those Indians, if you go to PubMed, I'm sure most of the uh, biology paper articles you read are done. Quite a number of you know, great Indian innovators and researchers are doing that work. So my answer is, it's again the conditions here. It's not the issue of we cannot do research. You know, there's any genetic or epigenetic issue. I should probably make that. Go ahead. Sure. So one of the things that uh, you know, very noticeable when uh, the, your bio was read out and as well when uh, you were talking your little story was that different fields in which you had deep interest in as you were actually growing up. Uh, now there are two schools of thought, one is the broad based uh, level of education and then going deep on different uh, uh, functions of education. Uh, is that as well one of the key principles of innovation or problem solving that one need to have interest in multiple niche areas and develop that? That is that also one of the areas uh, where you're seeing as uh, bringing on that innovation uh, or problem solving skills? You know, this is a good question. I think it's a really, really good question. So one of the things that I, so when I look at all, people say, oh, Shiva, you do all these different things. To me, they're actually very similar things and they have two characteristics to them. One is, Actually, three. One is I only do things that I really love. I don't think I've held a job for many years after I got out of college, but I only do things that I really, really love. And I, all I can tell you is if you do something you really love, and I know you, you read all these nice quotes on Facebook, but it's true. If you really do something you love, you'll always find ways to make money at it, okay? That's one. The other thing is I really believe in a systems approach. Um, there's a guy called Jay Forrester who is the... Um, He's 93 years old now. He's known as a father of systems dynamics. He's so he's the one who recognized that you need to bring a systems thinking to, into engineering education. And MIT is still fighting against it, right? Jay has decided to take his approach to kindergarten levels. And what he says, so last time I accidentally saw him, he's very hard to get a hold of, I accidentally walked into his office and I saw this old guy sitting there, I didn't know it was him. And he said, sit down and he started talking to me. But he told me a very interesting story. He said one time he was traveling in the back seat with Thomas Watson, who was the chairman of, of uh, IBM. And Thomas Watson looked at him, and Jay was his, uh, his consultant. And he said, hey, I don't understand why IBM is successful. He goes, we're not that good at engineering. We're not that good at marketing. We're not that great at uh, sales. We're OK in research. He goes, why are we succeeding? And he said this, the, the success of a company is not the sum of its element, but it's a product, okay? It's a very fascinating answer. So you could be really, really good at R&D, right? And you can be really good at marketing, but let's say you really are horrible at uh, sales, a zero. Well, the product is a zero. The reason I'm telling you this is that when you look at who we are as individuals, we're a combination of many things. And there's a synergy that comes about where the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Right? So the systems approach gives you that. So when I look at a problem, I have now access to so many different fields that I can look at an organizational biologically, or I can look at a biology, biology organization. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think part of the educational system, you know, we offer these different subjects, but the connective tissue that's missing, which by the way, you as engineers actually learn, if you know it or not. Software engineers actually do learn a systems approach because you're forced to do that. 
multi-terrain architectures, you have the user interface, you have the database layer, but I think what's really important is to have the systems approach that's brought into the educational system. Now, no one gave that to me. I just happened to sort of stumble onto it. But this is the next wave that's happening in education. Because if you look at large-scale systems, uh, educational systems, financial systems, um, you know, uh, and marriage, relationships, these are very complex systems. If you want to understand them, you have to have multiple disciplines and then you can fuse them together and really build the right side of your brain because complexity really can only be solved through intuition. So what I can tell you is that innovation, intuition, and systems, in my view, are very closely related and it's very important we start teaching systems thinking at a very young, le young level because it just really enhances your ability to look at the world in a different way. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Take one last question from Chennai. As you, yeah. As you are, as you are interested in medicine, I'm also interested in medicine. And presently, we are studying in the field of regeneration medicine. Are there any researchers going in MIT Boston? In regeneration medicine, I don't know who's doing this at MIT, but I know it's a really, really fascinating. You're talking about growing back limbs and these kind of things, yes. stem cell research. Yeah. yeah. Pluripotency cells, yeah. yeah. Well, stem cell research, in fact, I think India, believe it or not, because the regulation in the United States is somewhat tight. There's all these ethical issues, somewhat religious issues. India doesn't, India's a little more secular relative to this. So I think some very interesting areas of research have actually come out of India, frankly, if, if we're allowed to do some things. But regeneration research is gonna be a fascinating field. You know, there's a guy called um, Aubrey de Grey, I don't know if you guys know this guy. He's actually a computer scientist. To the earlier people who were wondering what you could do, he was a software engineer, computer scientist working at Cambridge. What Aubrey did was he went and read the last 80 years of research on anti-aging, you know, and regeneration. 80 years, he read every paper. He was not a biologist. He was a computer scientist, software engineer. It, that's one of it. What he found was that there were seven factors that cause aging, seven factors. And so what he predicted was that over the next um, 300 years, we would actually solve all of those seven problems through engineering. And that he published a paper, now Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is a reasonably you know, decent peer-reviewed journal. The maximum age that they thought a human being could live was 200 years. He put the number as 5,000 years. It got published, okay? It did get published. But the point is, he, he has said that we are moving at a, such a pace that if you can live for the next 50 years, you'll be able to live for the next 300 years. And once you do that, you'll be able to live for another 5,000 years. Because he's saying a lot of the technologies that cause aging will be solved through engineering, like nanotechnology, regeneration research, um, et cetera. So it's a very, very fascinating field, but again, there's a need for a lot of computer science in that field, because you have to do modeling, there's a need for a lot of uh, data collection, right, et cetera. Are we... Uh, for the third and final time, this will be the last question. I see, I saw one of my okay, friends from okay. Bangalore. Okay, we'll okay. take that last question from Bangalore. Uh, hello, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, Laurel, yeah, please go on. All right, uh, hello, I'm Raghavan from Bangalore. Uh, I graduated from bioinformatics, so thank you, Shiva, for uh, reminding me on those uh, uh, systems, biology, etc. I hardly have the memory of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
make uh, with plenty of online tools available, uh, especially databases like uh, NCBS, EBI, PDB, etc. There are plenty of things, uh, but these are mainly used in academic research and uh, other uh, commercial research as well. But uh, what's what seems to be going on is um, any any major breakthrough uh, seems to be commercialized and uh, copyrighted or patented or whatever. Uh, the recent example being Angelina Jolie got uh, uh, got some cancer cancer cure done over her breast. And uh, the only company could do that was the company she approached, and they had they actually you know uh, uh, taken ownership of it, and uh, nobody has been work on it. So uh, other than you know uh, moral uh, you know revisions or cleansing, uh, what can be done to prevent all these things from being commercialized and monopolized, and uh, you know uh, being completely uh, done by a single person just for uh, uh, for the sake of uh, finance or money order. I mean, what can uh, what can be the legal uh, steps to uh, be taken for handling all this? That's my question. I'm not even sure if uh, uh, this is the right place to ask, but I've always been wanted to ask someone, and I thought I should ask here. Yeah. So I, I think the question you're asking is. Basically, how, how, you have these two worlds going on right now. There's one encouragement in the current capitalist model, right? That you create something, you patent it, and then you take that patent, you create a company, and you protect that patent with tremendous amount of IP protection so you can make money off of it, right? That's the current model. But also, if you look, there's another movement taking place, which, it, which people are calling open source, right? You create technology to make it open. One, one of the ways I can answer your question is, this is an interesting trend that's taking place. If you look at the typical university, the typical university was founded on two programs, right? Right, classrooms. It, it, a university was defined by classes, the kind of classroom education it had, and then it had what? Research, right? So if you were a really strong university, you had really good classes and you had really great research. If you notice what's happening now with open source education, right, with edX and these kinds of things, online education, Khan Academy, that circle of classroom is being opened up. You follow what I'm saying? Anyone can go online and get a whole bunch of education. The question that some friends of mine I've been talking about is, will that happen to research? Today, research is guarded by the universities. They try to own the intellectual property because they get royalties. They want to pass on those licensing rights to their creators, and then those creators start companies, right? That's the current model. But there's another model that could occur the same as open education is occurring, right? You can go online, free education. Could that happen to research? Which means, let's say myself, you in Bangalore, someone in Chennai, and someone in Africa, we all have an online capability where we can collaborate on research, and there's common properties that are done where you can do research, you know, open environments. Some people are building lab spaces now where you can actually access instrumentation online so you can run experiments. So the theory is if you can do that kind of open research, then that collaborative makes the intellectual property available to people overall. And in fact, the research work products available. It's a new model that could evolve because of the internet where you drive down the cost of research. Now this is gonna disrupt a lot of the existing people, right, who rely on intellectual property, licenses, revenue. So I think ultimately this is going to be a political battle that's going to be fought by people actually starting to do these interesting things. Like when Aaron Schwartz downloaded, everyone remember this guy Aaron Schwartz? Everyone read about him? Yep, yeah, no? Yeah, he killed himself, okay? 
because MIT put so much pressure on him. They in fact got the Attorney General's because he, as a statement, downloaded 30,000 journals because he said that these were actually public journals that they should be work products for all people because they, the funding for many of this research is coming from our tax dollars. And this is a very long debate, but I personally happen to stand on the side, if it's funded by public dollars, it should go back to the public with some nominal level for the creator. But this is really a political question and it's really going to be decided by all of you based, I mean some of you here may want to create new technologies to support open research, like that's been done for open software. So these are opportunities again for us as engineers. Is that the last question? I, yes? So I, I think what I want to end by saying is, you know, I'm really, really pleased to be here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. And I'm very honored to be among such a great group of people. You guys are extremely uh, bright. You know, you guys are very sophisticated in your questions. And, and the opportunities that you have it in front of you is just phenomenal. So if you guys can come together and, in, like you said, in local ways solve these, Think always about dealing with the customer, you know, servicing the customer as the end product, which you have to do at Infosys anyway, because the customer ultimately pays all of our bills here. That that's going to always keep us honest and keep us on the road to really innovate really good products because we have to actually solve real problems. So I want to encourage you all to do that. And again, thank you again for this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. I think we can do a little better than that, yeah? Thank you. Now, before thanking Dr. Shiva, I think it's, it's only um, right for us to thank one of our ex-Infosion who is currently based in the US, um, Karthik. Um, I think he's not with Infosys, but uh, I've never seen a passionate Infosion than him. Um, he was the one who contacted me over Facebook over about roughly about three months back and he sent me a brief profile of this gentleman. Uh, frankly speaking, before that, I, 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 pardon my ignorance, I really didn't know that this, uh, such a personality even exists. So he said, you should read about him. And he said, Sujit, the, the, the moment I get to hear that he's going to travel to Chennai, please get him to our campus to come and talk. So it was Karthik uh, Rangarajan, who, who, who's um, currently based in the US, who, who facilitated this entire uh, meeting. And thank you so much for accepting. And for the audience who are sitting here, if you thought uh, Dr. Shiva was bubbling with energy, this is the third lecture for the day. I think he started with uh, GT Aloha School in Nilankarai, then had a, uh, had a roughly about an hour to hour and a half lecture at the Satyavama University. And this is the third lecture. And I don't know whether he's planning for any more lectures uh, through the day. I think there is some secret about it. Um, I was told that he's going to be in India for about 20 days. Um, if you follow Facebook, Twitter, he's all over the place right now. Uh, I went to a, a, a college in a remote place um, somewhere deep down in Tiruvannamalai and there they said yesterday Dr. Shiva was here. Um, <laughs> So, so that's the kind of personality whom, whom we are meeting today and um, he's going to be in TCS, he was in Sun TV, uh, as yesterday I think he was in VIT University. I mean, I, I think that uh, the whole idea of being here in India, not just on a vacation kind of trip, but then wanting to reach out to as many young minds as possible to share this story, I think kudos to you. I think we really, really enjoyed uh, this particular talk of yours and we were very glad that we were able to connect all our development centers over uh, a video conference. So it was wonderful listening to you, Dr. Shiva, and maybe the next time when you're here, we'd love to have you back in our campus. 
uh, for yet another inspiring uh, session. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give it a big round of applause to Dr. Shiva. Thank you. It was a complete honor listening to you. photographer yeah, thank you Raghav. Um, thank you ladies and gentlemen you can exit through the both the doors left and right thank you for uh,